You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Mark Bedard. Today, really excited to talk with Arwa Kadora about the evolution of sales and sales transformation. Arwa has uh, she's worked at HPE's GreenLake Cloud Service Business Unit in April 2020. Uh, she has a long and proven background in sales transformations, having scaled sales organizations for startups, uh, leading the cloud development solution sales team for Microsoft. At Microsoft, uh, Arwa was Senior Director for Worldwide Cloud Application Development Sales. And Arwa is going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's that was the highest uh, growing cloud services piece of Azure. Absolutely. Um, there yep. it is. Triple digit growth. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, beautiful. I love it. Uh, previous uh, at Zamarin, she uh, helped lead her team for over 100% year-over-year top-line growth for three consecutive years until... Uh, the company was sold to Microsoft. She holds an MBA uh, in finance from the University of San Fran, BSc finance uh, from the University of Alberta, Canada. Uh, Arwa believes in science of sales and creating repeatable sales engines that produce scalable growth. It's a mouthful, but I love it, Arwa. I love it. Really love excited it. to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the nice and long intro. Uh, super excited to be with you, Mark. Um, yeah, I know this is an important topic. I, I think being in Silicon Valley, um, I sort of have quite an extended network of very bright um, colleagues and friends um, that are looking to crack, you know, sort of sales and sales transformations and, you know, scalable sales organizations. Um, as they build these fabulous product companies. So this is a very sort of near and dear topic uh, to my heart um, and to everything that I do today and the things that I've done in the past 10 years. I love it. And and I can't wait to dive in here to start picking your brain about some of this because it's, it's obviously on your uh, colleagues' top of mind. Uh, everyone we talk to is thinking about the exact same thing with product-led growth. Uh, there's an evolution happening, and I know we've talked about this previously, uh, specifically around sales and sales transformation. And we were talking about kind of two pieces to that, uh, the salespeople and the sales processes and, and this evolution over time that's taking place. Can you help frame that for the audience? Help us help them understand what you're seeing and, and, and uh, make sense of all of this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think overall uh, for a pretty significant percentage of my career, sales to me was a black box, right? Um, I actually started my career in finance and accounting. 
um, which it's kind of like if you come from finance and accounting, you you sort of understand the structure, right? You understand the monthly flow. You understand your deadlines. Uh, there were journal entry binders that you had to fill in and reconciliations that, you, that were due and projections and models, right? So I always felt very, very comfortable in the things that I could model, that I could measure, that I could sort of uh, work on day by day. I showed up to work really understanding the accountabilities that I had to the business as well as those uh, of the folks on my team. Sales never seemed that way, right? Sales seemed like this magical place of highly dynamic, charismatic people that know enough to be dangerous and had certain, you know, Rolodexes. Um, and again, black box, magic happens, sale comes in, right? And sometimes that seemed really easy, right? From a back end um, office perspective. And other times you're like, ooh, um, I could never do that. I could never replicate that. And, and the reason you think that you can't replicate it and the reason it seems like such a mystery is there are no documented processes. There are no best practices that, you know, are not generic. Like so much of sales best practices is the most obvious stuff that you're like, oh, this is almost condescending. Like really best practice, research the customer. Oh, like, thank you. Thanks for, <laughs> you know, so it always seemed like this thing where people did not want to overshare. Um, and so we're really taking a role, I think, that over the past 10 years has truly and continues to truly transform as a profession of closed off IP to what I would consider open sourced IP, right? Um, the, sa the same way that technology companies used to, you know, close source, you know, every everything is IP, you know, Microsoft thought that Linux was a cancer because that was open source technology. You know, it everything had to be behind the Windows, um, you know, IP and firewall, et cetera. We could never expose anything to you, right? If we did that, you can then potentially improve it and therefore um, not need us anymore. So there was always this um, huge dependency that companies had on their salespeople, which in my mind was really unhealthy because effectively what it created is this whole notion of a superstar culture, right? Like there's a few people that have it and then everybody else doesn't. Um, and so you become a slave to those people that have it versus really try to break this down the same way you would any other role, which is what, is, what do you need to do to be successful end to end, right? From lead to close to expansion, there have to be certain elements that we can abstract, document, you know, um, improve, iterate on, um, train on, and then effectively that needs to turn into a repeatable sales engine. It doesn't mean you're going to get a hundred percent hit, but it means it's also not, you know, uh, that mysterious either. And um, you know, really moving away from product centric training to again building repeatable go-to-markets. Go-to-markets have multiple elements, like training and sales enablement and product training is only one small dimension. Um, so for me, the transformation really is in that sort of ability for us to break down um, the sales process. Um, also, rethinking and reimagining the salespeople that perform this job, right? Like, you know, you've been in this world long enough to know that it used to be pretty alpha, kind of charismatic, you know, the guy that likes to, you know, have a million miles with the, his airline and you know, a lot of points with, you know, his favorite hotels um, <laughs> yeah. to far more technical, right? Dare I say engineering background, maybe even introverted people who can actually um, 
perform really, really well in sales roles. So we're also breaking down the myths behind the fact that there you had to hire a certain personality type, right? Uh, I, I think what we found is all types of personality types can be successful in sales. It's it's not a knock against extroverts because I'm I happen to be an extrovert and I crave and, you know, love um, sort of the energy of uh, a lot of people around me. But it's also to say that that is not the only winning strategy of sales, right? So I think we've become a lot more sophisticated and nuanced about what does it really take to be successful in sales and how do we demystify it? So it's not, you know, what I would call a crapshoot, like just hire someone that sounds like they can sell ice to Eskimos and give them a quota and give them, you know, a briefcase and a laptop and send them off, you know, with an Amex card. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Demystifying. The, uh, I think that's a that's a big topic that I keep hearing out there. And, and you're kind of breaking it down, Arwen, to, you know, there's the sales process piece and then there's the sales people piece. And and both are obviously evolving and changing pretty rapidly uh, in, in certainly post-COVID times. Uh, we're seeing that escalated uh, way faster. T- talk to me about, I guess, Either or, right? Sales yeah. process or salespeople. What were they? Sure. What are they going to become? Yeah, totally. Again, I think, um, you know, if I had to draw a visual for people, I would say, you know, you had your lone wolf, right? Again, the the guy or gal, mostly guys, right? Not not to be stereotypical, but but this has been, especially in tech sales, has been a fairly, you know, male-dominated um, industry because, and to be honest, COVID is probably democratizing that profile a little bit for a lot of people because um, the fact that it was a requirement to be able to travel 75% of the time, Um you know, probably no longer exists today. Um, it, it's it's a requirement that hopefully is also, you know, yes, we appreciate the intimacy of the customer experience and, you know, building relationships with people face-to-face, taking them out to dinner, entertaining them. But again, let's go back to sort of what you're telling me, what you're asking me about, hey, like, what is the profile and how is it changing? You know, steak dinners as a way of selling, um, you know, golf tournaments as a way of selling. Um, again, I'm going to say that if your company today relies on those mechanisms to secure most of your revenue, you're in trouble, right? You have to have completely different ways to, you know, sell your products. And those things have to depend on not you selling and entertaining but you educating and creating awareness around your capabilities, right? Because most of the customers, and and there's a lot of pretty good research now that tells you, you know, by the time the customer comes to you, they've already, they they probably know 70% of what they need to know, right? And so the final bit is really to get access to the resources that they otherwise couldn't, you know, from your website or from, you know, whatever public research that they've done, or, you know, if they're using third-party tools like Gartner, you know, whatever that might maybe gated and they don't have access to and, you know, whatever. Um, the, The evolution of the salesperson honestly has to become lone wolf to, you know, chief entertainer uh, to chief problem solver, right? I have to start to get to know what my customer's, you know, business objectives are, what is my customer trying to do, you know, who are the right personas within my customer, etc. Again, if you're kind of talking about maybe account-based selling here, right? This is maybe where the ratios are a little tighter. Um, being able to truly understand outcomes 
and then map that back to solutions versus, you know, the whole notion that, well, if they trust me, then whatever I put in front of them, they will just blindly take. I, I think we just, you know, and by the way, it's no longer a big deal, right? Like we used to be, you know, the era of selling sort of big seven figure, you know, one time, right? Like I, whether it was on-prem solutions or whether it was one-time software, and then maybe you had some kind of ongoing maintenance, like all of those business models are being completely disrupted, right? So first we went through like, okay, first we went through the fact that we were selling software, right? So Oracle came in, they completely modernized the, the way that companies operated at an ERP level. They were actually selling software that helped companies have, you know, certain um, perspectives into their financials, their inventory, their manufacturing facilities, blah, blah, blah. Then it was like, well, hang on a second. Why the heck am I, you know, buying this big fat software? And, you know, there's just all these big clunky updates that also then cost me really expensive consulting dollars and whatever. And I have to have all this crazy amount of infrastructure on the back end to support it. Right. Then we kind of moved into the SaaS world. SaaS came in and Salesforce was like, hey, hey, you know, you know, this, the Siebel's of the world and the whatever uh, Oracle, like, hey, it's just an app. It's in the cloud, no infrastructure, no software. You know, they had the software sign with the red against it, right? They, they wanted to break through and tell everybody that you just literally just get a sign on, right? Get a login and away you go. No, no customization, right? This is just point and click configuration, no development resources, no expensive consultants. You know, they, they were the nirvana of, you know, sort of user friendliness, um, again, and, and no real heavyweight um, sort of, you know, total cost of ownership associated. Just pay for the, the SaaS license, pay for the number of users you need, you're done, right? No, no ERP, you know, this is not an enterprise-wide license that's going to cost you seven figures. And you can start small, right? That was the beauty of SaaS. Is, so again, that transformed yet again our sales processes. Because again, before I could hire big, expensive, you know, experienced salespeople because uh, look, if they scored a deal for my company, we're probably talking an average selling price somewhere well in the seven figures. So I could afford a really, really expensive person, right? The person making well into the six figures. Then we moved into Salesforce, right? That era st started to create this whole notion of land and expand, right? Just get those first five users. And if I can get those five users, boy, I can really start to um, accelerate, right? And they they introduced the, you know, the notion of customer success as well to us, which is it's not just good enough to um, sell your product. It's uh, What's actually more critical is that the customer uses your product because if they do, then you can get more utilization, from there, right, which then became my world at Microsoft, it's like, awesome, yay, SaaS, uh, we can buy per users. Now we enter cloud consumption. Cloud consumption is even yet another value prop further that says, we're not going to charge you per user. We're not going to charge you for, you know, um, seats you might not be deploying. We're literally only going to charge you for what you use, right? We're going to break down the components of infrastructure that you need and you just, you know, whatever you use, we bill you for, right? And so this is like the concept of, you know, a lot of companies will talk about like, we went from like buying the car to leasing the car to now, hey, anytime you just need a car, there's just one lane around, right? You jump into it, you go wherever you want and we'll literally just bill you for the mileage that you drove it for, right? Um, so yet another and, and the theme here, right, if you're following the trajectory of what tech companies are doing uh, for the overall economy, it's this constant push for efficiency, 
right? We don't want you to ever pay us for anything you do not use. And the minute you stop using it, we will stop billing you, right? There is no penalty. You don't have to negotiate it. You don't have to sit there and spend cycles with us. And so that, that cloud experience is yet another transformational go-to-market uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, foundation that then means, well, now my salespeople have to adapt yet again, right? So Salesforce forced us to think about starting small and growing. Cloud forces you to constantly earn the right to do business with that customer. Because every time um, you use me, that's the only time I get value back into my organization. If for whatever reason you don't see any value in using me, you I don't get paid, right? I, I don't see the revenue. It doesn't count into my, you know, run rate, um, et cetera. So we're we're starting to get much closer to matching customer value with the company value, right? And the closer those two things get together, uh, the more efficient our sales resources have to be. We can no longer afford big, expensive people that do one deal a year um, or don't do anything at all and fail. Um, because if, if, if that happens, it, effectively, our runway is, is shortened, right? And so we have to think about, well, how do I make sales much more efficient, right? If the rest of my business model is becoming more efficient, well, sales has to be right there with me. Because before, I could probably afford a bunch of salespeople not performing because the ones that did more than made up the shortfall of the others. And so, again, this sort of narrowing of the gap between what I sell uh, my services ad and how often I sell it ad and the margin of error that I can afford to have within sales versus where I'm at today is is genuinely tightening. And and we see, you know, at Microsoft, it was funny, um, you know, we, we used to think about um, end of quarter, end of year, right? If, if you worked in one of these companies, even Salesforce, right, which again, SaaS or any of the SaaS companies that, um, you know, my colleagues work at, you still genuinely care about quarter end um and year-end, year-end probably more so than ever, right? right? Within cloud, every day matters. And so we used to say um, sort of the the um, the last day of the fiscal year has kind of moved up to the first day of the fiscal year. Because if you can get a customer to start consuming on day one, and let's say they're paying you a dollar per day, that's $365 that you can get paid for in a consumption world versus if they sign up the last day of the year, that's a dollar. So that's a 365x multiple just based on when they signed up. Just the timing of when they start consuming can radically change how you are measured, right? So again, the measurement is now also completely transformed of how we think about our sellers. And so before it would have been, hey, What's the TCV, right? What's the total contract value? It was $7 million, you know, when I was, not me personally, but when folks were selling ERP one-time type uh, EWL licenses. With Salesforce, it was all about what's my annual contract value, right? And again, how do I land and expand that? Because maybe I get the first 5, 10, 15 users, but really what happens upon renewal is I can get more users and more users, right? And I can get these mid-year add-ons. Um, and so maybe they gave me a book of business and they said, okay, you have to expand it by 50, 70%. And I, I did that through add-ons. But again, it didn't matter when I got the add-ons so long as I got them by the end of the year. And then you move into consumption. And now it's like, hey, you're responsible for a consumption quota, right? That And that was the major pivot we made at Microsoft. It was painful for people to go from what you would call build revenue 
right? Built revenue, meaning, hey, go sign a contract and whatever the total on that contract says, that's what you get paid on, right? So if they buy a bunch of Office and a bunch of, you know, SQL and a bunch of Dynamics and whatever, whatever, you know, and that's a three-year deal. And if it's worth a million dollars, that will throw that towards your quota attainment. Again, Azure totally transformed that. It was, well, what did they consume? I don't care if they committed $5 million to Azure. If at the end of the year, they consumed zero because they haven't kicked off a single project that consumes any of those cloud resources, your quota attainment was zero. So dramatically different, I think, in terms of just how we need to think about sales, the sales processes, right? And and the sh- and for me, it's kind of like, well, what's the underlying dynamics that are changing that are forcing our salespeople to change and our sales processes to change, right? And it is that fundamental shift of the um, sort of, especially the big tech companies, you know, led by AWS, right? And of course, Azure was quick to answer, uh, albeit, uh, you know, AWS has a, had a much longer runway. And then, you, you know, you now see GCP, you now see IBM, you now see Oracle. Um, th- they're all following. They understand that this is critical for their survival. That's, that's incredible, obviously. I mean, I'm sure the listeners right now are just awestruck in this because there's you, you covered so many pieces there Ara, from the evolution of the actual individual and i love just to call out a few pieces of it you know going from a um like a relationship seller or a trust seller to uh i, I like how you put it a, a chief problem solver and problem finder you know to that i, I think that's excellent right that evolution must take place um you're, you're telling yeah, and me, i think decision making yeah. is also started to get democratized, right? You used to be able to, I mean, how many times did you hear sell high, right? Which is just go to the, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, CIO, CFO, C, you know, whatever. And that person literally used to have single decision-making capabilities. They can drive decisions downward, right? The CFO could say, I want to Oracle ERP. And that will, you know, and, and there was a predictability around, hey, you know what, everybody knew when, um, oh, the, these contracts were going to be up for, you know, they're expiring. And every, let's say, five to seven years, your company had a chance to go pitch that customer. And you had to start that sales cycle probably one to two years in advance, right, to be able to secure that position if, if you could be lucky enough to win. The beauty of what's happened to sort of our, you know, um, business environment is the CIO is usually consolidating demand, right? So he or she still have a lot of power, but they're looking to their organization to go, well, do you like this tool? Have you guys tried it? You know, everything is far more accessible now, right? And I think that's also a function of freemium go-to-markets, right? Which is, you know, Atlassian did this and GitHub did this. And, you know, actually it was a lot of it. And and I have a rich history in development tooling, right? Coming from Xamarin. Developers don't buy by having steak dinners with, you know, salespeople that come suited <laughs> sure. up and want to talk business, right? Developers are like, hey, I just, I go grab a bunch of open source, uh, you know, code and I, you know, may add a couple things to it or maybe not. And then I run it in whatever environment I'm trying to optimize. And then if there is an enterprise capability around that to kind of guarantee me a certain level of SLA and performance, then sure, I'll recommend it. But I'm again, developers were, were problem solvers, right? And so a lot of the tech companies started catering to what they needed, right? And started skipping over salespeople, just started literally putting the products on their website 
started giving free trials, giving maybe even a free version that never needed to be purchased, but maybe had slightly lower capabilities. So freemium go-to-markets really disrupted, I think, as well, um, a lot of the sales profile that's and sales processes that we also know and love, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love the I love the change going to almost like a utility. You know, you turn on the switch when you need it, you turn it off when you don't. Uh, your your analogy there around cars was perfect. You know, I can I can buy a car previously, then I could lease a car. That's almost like a SaaS model, and now I can just dial Uber up, right? Or, or Lyft. Hey, exactly. Or, or you see the scooters that are thrown everywhere, right? You're like, sure. that's yeah. just, hey, I'll sign up for an account. And anytime I need to get around quickly, I just pick up one of these scooters, um, albeit that that's probably not the perfect business model, but, but hopefully they're doing well. Uh, yeah, it's the perfect on demand, right? It's just like, only bill me for literally what I use, nothing else. I, I don't want to participate. In, like, I, I don't know if you ever get like your credit card statement and, and you cringe at like, oh, I don't know what freaking all the subscriptions that I've signed up for by now. Sure. And I almost feel like I have to hire like someone to just go through the subscriptions and find out, do I use them or do I not? <laughs> right. And, and that's the beauty of the like consumption world. It's like, please only bill me when I use it. Right. If I don't, like I shouldn't have to call you and beg you to like turn it off and, you know, um, but yeah. again, there's sometimes there is value in that, which is, look, if you're going to be if you're going to have a certain level of usage, you know, Zipcar can get expensive if you need a car every day, all day. Right. Um, so maybe that is when you think about either leasing or owning. So it's, it's not to say those other uh, ways to deliver value aren't valid, but it's, it's really to think about the fact that you have to offer choice to your customers and you have to make things accessible. You can no longer gate your technical prowess, your, um, you know, the the technical capabilities of what your product can do. Like if those things are not rel- relatively accessible on your website um, or on a YouTube channel where you, you know, show off different demos or, you know, via certain, you know, just train, like if there isn't a training um, section to your website, I'd really question your go-to-market, right? Especially if you're a tech company today. Yeah, it's com- complete customer driven, right? So I'll ask you a, a really chicken and the egg scenario question here. Uh, throw you a little curveball and, and we'll see <laughs> We'll see where it where Sure, it lands. go for but it. Is it, is it the, obviously everything's customer focused now, customer journey. Is it the customers that are, demanding this from the SaaS companies and the tech companies and and the um, consumption-based models? Or is it the flip? Is it the innovation from the tech companies and the acclimation, I guess, for the customers getting used to AWS or getting used to a couple of these models and then demanding it across uh, any buying process? Yeah, what I'm going to, I think the way I would answer that is, again, if I go back to the OSS, right, the open source sort of uh, software uh, revolution, where all of a sudden developers just started sharing code with one another, um, I think that fundamentally started undermining companies like Microsoft, for example, right? So Steve Ballmer went on record saying, yeah, this is a cancer. Do not put this into your organization. This is just fraught with security and da, da, da. Uh, what happened is the community, you know, so you had all of a sudden these communities, right, that were f- formulating outside of big enterprise software companies. 
And these guys were kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not really that scared. And uh, like Steve Ballmer's uh, words of caution don't actually scare me. If anything, it actually turned the community a little bit against Microsoft. Right. And, and I'm kind of referencing this is probably maybe, I don't know, 20, 20 some years ago, right, where Microsoft started being seen as this over, you know, like just too powerful of a company and had this chokehold on companies. Again, I would put Oracle in the same vein. Right. All of a sudden, it seemed like the power had shifted from the customer to the um, technology provider. And I think what happened is a lot of smart people who were not super motivated by money, to be honest, started saying, look, I'm just going to put stuff out there and, and feel free to use it. Right. So I think it was that community and that thought process that we're going to share and we're going to build things that we're totally willing to just let anyone pick up. Um, that I think is what kind of changed. And so once customers started getting their hands on these things, they actually started moving away from these you know, sort of um, companies that forced them into a lockdown um, IP uh, sort of technology investment. And these customers, right, and, and I think a lot of that was led by the startup revolution, uh, because those guys had a lot less to gain from investing millions of dollars on really expensive software. They actually could test in smaller ways using open source software, right? And then kind of the, the risk to them was much lower because they, these are Fortune 500 companies. You know, a lot of the risk is could easily be managed. And, you know, they're, they're still probably testing their business models. And, and I think once that happened, right, and then once you saw the rise of these startups all of a sudden become really prominent, and again, you had AWS all of a sudden meet them exactly at the perfect time to say, here you go, I'll also give you this consumption-led infrastructure so you don't even have to worry about any of this backend stuff, right? Just build your IP, build it using the open source software stack that you'd like, and then I'll just supply you with all the infrastructure that you need to build your code on top of, right? Because all of a sudden you start having open source like uh, databases to compete with uh, Oracle and SQL and all of those. And you started having open source development tools to compete with, you know, the visual studios of the world and whatever. And, and so I think it, it really was the open source revolution, basically saying there's another way and then startups embracing it and showing that they could be successful then you, of course, I think the enterprise companies are always the last to go, oh, wait a minute. You know what? Those guys are agile. Their time to market is incredible. They have like somehow they're, they're accessing innovation that we simply don't have access to, right, because of how they're working. And so they start hiring a lot of these super bright, you know, young people that are doing this in the startup world. And again, it, it sort of went from that to the customers. And now, again, again, I would tell you, it's a survival mechanism for big tech companies, right? And again, some of the big tech companies had already shifted there, and some are doing it today. Like, I don't know how much advertising you probably see for Oracle Cloud, right? That's a fundamentally different value prop, right, that um, Oracle is now offering versus what they used to offer. Um, and IBM, right? IBM was mainframe, right? Like, hey, big, very expensive um, sort of uh, pieces of technology, right? To, to run your big, important tier one applications. Uh, hey, now all that could be broken apart, right? Like, welcome to the um, sort of like distributed economy. Everything could be broken down into smaller bite-sized pieces that you can consume at different levels of scale. The distributed economy, I think, is... Largely in part why there's what like 
8,000 8, plus MarTechs out there or something like that. I, there's got to be just a million, right? Totally. And, and it's this whole like push and pull, right, between breaking apart the value chain, right? There's a lot of startups that look to see where is there a middleman or, you know, middle woman, I guess to keep it gender neutral, but where are there middle people that don't really add value other, other than just passing things back and forth? And anytime you see that, I'm going to go disrupt that, right? I'm going to go there and make sure that the end-to-end value chain is as efficient as possible. And so what that's created is, A, people have been able to break things apart, right, and say, look, I'm just going to focus on this piece. I'm going to become the expert on that piece. And then it's also forced a new go-to-market where alliances are also really critical and ecosystems, right? Like, so you see Salesforce building, again, I'll I'll give them a lot of credit, right? I think they were one of the first to create um, an ecosystem of tools, right? That work within Salesforce, right? The the Salesforce uh, exchange um, ecosystem, right? Where if now I want to go build some kind of commission tool, I can build it on top of Salesforce and I can offer it right on the sort of um, Salesforce uh, partner exchange page and customers can find me that way. But, you know, um, now it's like Salesforce doesn't have to build all the capabilities, right? They can also open their platform up to other people to say, hey, come come in and bring your best and whatever, you know, sort of bring your applications, bring your capabilities, bring your analytics, whatever you need to supplement me so that I can now have a richer. And then, of course, the next piece after that were the services companies, the service integrators, right? The SIs and the service providers, which is also, hey, if you want to customize my tool, I have a whole ecosystem worth of partners that can also come in and help you build and put all the right components together. So, you know, if you don't want it out of the box and you want it to be highly configured for your exact use case, again, rich ecosystems. So you start to see this sort of, again, they first they break it apart, right? And then they start to reassemble it and say, look, I have the rich ecosystem surrounding me. And then they start building their own capabilities, right? So you then you quickly get into the first party, third party battle, which is, oh, but wait, Salesforce, you actually bought a commission system. So now as you know, a third party commission provider on your exchange platform, I may be pissed off at you or whatever. But it, it, it's a, you know, it's an ultimate co-op competition world, I think, at this point, which is you have to know how to sell side by side, sell with and sell, you know, against a lot of the people that that you need. Absolutely. Yeah. More technical, more product uh, focused salesperson. Obviously, the ecosystem is going from, you know, hardware to software to SaaS to then consumption. Let me ask you, as it relates to the ecosystem, the is there still going to be a spot for SaaS or is it, do you really envision there being a, a, an ecosystem where it's purely consumption for all of these things? Is there still a, a unique company yeah. that SaaS makes more sense for, I guess? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think pricing models specifically will continue to get challenged and anywhere, it's going to be an arbitrage process, right? Anywhere where there's waste, somebody's going to be coming out and saying, I can lower your TCO, right? Your total cost of ownership. Instead of paying by seat or by month or by year, this is my pricing model, right? It's truly consumption-led. Now, sometimes though, consumption can actually be more expensive, right? Because again, like think about yourself. If if you needed uh, a place to stay, 
you know, take it back to the car analogy or even the house analogy. You could buy a house, you could rent a house, you can rent a hotel room, literally night by night, right? Um, so th- those economics, I-, I think they all have to be available and we just have to give choice. And, and again, like why are Uber and Airbnb like some of the hottest companies that we all know today, right? Like why? They didn't provide anything really new. We had vacation rentals before, right? We had a place to stay when we went on vacation. We've always been able to, you know, have taxis. It it was just the way that they delivered it in a far more accessible way. And they also like the A, they gave you the transparency of the experience. But B, now it's like, oh, you know, it used to be that like vacation rentals kind of seemed like a you had to be like a, you know, pretty upper middle class to to know how to even book a house when you went on vacation, right? For for the average person, it was kind of like, hey, just, you know, go on whatever hotels.com or Expedia or whatever. And that was, you know, th- that's pretty much the available inventory there was to you. And then depending on your price point, you can stay, you know, somewhere affordable or somewhere super luxurious. And then Airbnb came along and said, no, there's, you know, there's all these fabulous homes, depending on the location that you want, the price point that you want, the number of people that you have in your party. And then it also gave me as a consumer the ability to also afford potentially a second home that I can share the cost of, right? Because, hey, if I if I have a second home, most likely I'm not using it more than, you know, two to three or four weeks per year. And so now somebody's given me the ability to share that, right? And, and so what we're doing there is eliminating waste, right? Eliminate a property that's being wasted because, you know, the owner could only be there a few times a year. Eliminate sort of a taxi having to always be, you know, rerouted through central command, right? Like if you're already close to the next passenger, boom, automatically be able to route that next ride over to me and the passenger wins and the you know the uber driver wins right so it's all about taking efficiency right out or or adding efficiency into the system and taking waste out of the system so to me again consumption is going to make sense however if consumption sometimes will also mean more expensive choices because consumption also has to be something that you might not be able to always fully predict, right? So you have to also say, well, if I just want something dedicated to me, right, then I need price stability and I need to know how much that's going to cost me per year. And the more economic way to deliver that experience to me potentially is, you know, the SaaS model or the one-time model or the multi-year model as well. So, you know, I'm coming out of SaaS and, you know, I've even up until recently, right, it's there's still a lot of customers that go, I want a three-year price. I don't even want a one-year price because I'm afraid that you will, you know, jack up your prices next year and... If, if, if I'm already like standardizing on your technology, I need to understand that I'm not going to have these massive surprises in my you know, future budget. So it's not to say SaaS or any of those things are dead. It's to say, I think every company needs to understand what their pricing and go-to-market strategies around all three models look like. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, there's big advantages to having that low barrier of entry, uh, get people on it, get them trialing on it, and then Ideally, like you said, a product-led growth strategies for upgrading them into uh, whatever they need to be in at, at the end of the day, once it is infrastructural to their success. Exactly. Uh, it's totally about meeting them where they are. And again, a lot, and you know what, what that's done is it's also allowed companies to 
to bring in a lot more technology, right, inside their company, where before you would have only been able to invest in like one or two or, you know, three things maximum a year, because everything was so clunky and big and heavy, you're now able to try a lot of different things and just keep the things that like end up producing results or adding value to your business. Absolutely. Do you have uh, any, uh, I want to leave the audience with something here as it relates to the future and a prediction or anything to that degree. Sure. Is, is there anything that that you'd uh, point out to them? I know you, you like making predictions, Arwa. So like, tell, me, <laughs> tell me what the future is going to be. What, yeah. what are we going to expect as it relates to the salespeople, the sales processes that are happening? Yeah. I What's think it look like? Well, and I may have alluded to this earlier. I, I think salespeople have to inherently become a lot more technical. And when I say technical, it's not just, you know, that they have to have computer science degrees. It's, it's that they have to understand the solution that they sell at a pretty deep level, right? Whether they're, you know, selling marketing technology or, you know, cloud compute technology or whatever. They, they need to be subject matter experts. They, this is not a, again, selling um, ice to Eskimos, right? You have to be able to put your shoes, uh, yourself in the shoes of your customer, which means quickly relate to their problems and quickly uh, bring them a solution that makes sense for them. So to me, the evolution of salespeople is, again, you'll probably start to see a lot more introverted people. You'll start to see a lot more operation and engineering sort of backgrounds in sales. Um, and a big part of that is going to be that those people actually never thought that they would be well-suited for sales roles. And they're going to find themselves in customer-facing situations where they're actually going to realize that they really enjoy that experience of helping solve customer problems. And they're going to realize that, you know, the other big secret of sales is you also make a lot more money, right, when you are in that role. And so how do we demystify it just for those people so that they are excited about entering the world of sales and that we start to change the hearts and minds around how do we think of, you know, quote unquote, salespeople, right? Salespeople, I think, come with a lot of baggage in terms of their, their reputations. Um, so really making sure, I think, um, I think going forward, I think salespeople will start to be seen a lot more as subject matter experts, thought leaders, um, you know, technical people. A lot more so than the lone wolf, you know, the, you know, um, steak, steak eating, golf, you know, going, uh, entertaining kind of uh, persona that that I think for a long time we we just sort of stereotyped in our minds about what salespeople are. So a huge evolution, I think, in terms of the profile of the people that will have sales roles, and I hope that also brings a lot more diversity. To the role, uh, especially post-COVID times where maybe the um, the notion that you need to travel as much also opens this up to, to be a much more accessible field for, you know, women or people with families and, and, and other types of things. Um, and I would say the other really big thing is, um, yeah, the, the whole, when, when I talk about repeatability, right, I think sales is going to be the next thing that becomes highly scientific. So it's going to be the, the notion that sales is a process. Sales is something that you can work on, that you can be, um, well-trained in, 
Um, and if you're able to follow these processes and understand sort of how to replicate key um, steps, that you can also be highly successful. Again, not no magic, no, hey, you have to have this wide and diverse you know, network that you've built up over 30 years. I think it's going to be a slightly younger audience. It's going to be a, you know, a savvy audience of knowing how to use tools, et cetera, to, to automate a lot of things. Um, but it also potentially means that sales might, you know, for, from a price point perspective, right, that maybe these roles don't end up being these very, very high level six figure type roles in the future, right? If we can democratize these roles, it probably also means it's much more accessible, um, which means um, potentially, um, you know, uh, different profiles of how we pay these people as well. Uh, I love it. And I think Gardner just released a, a real quick uh, snippet out pretty recently, which was saying 33% of B2B buyers actually prefer not to speak with a salesperson at all in the buying process. I mean, that's these are large purchases well, too, Arwen. That's if, not like mom and pop. That's like two, $300,000 purchases. And to be honest, if you think you're speaking to a salesperson, you're automatically just, you're like, oh God, like this person is just trust. like, yeah, yeah you want to speak to a subject matter expert. That's who you ultimately get. You're like, let me tell you a little bit about my problem, right? And then you want someone else on the other side to go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've dealt with this. Here's what like I've done with some, you know, some of our other customers have done. Da, da, da. Let's schedule a workshop. Let's do this. Let's do that, right? You don't want someone who goes, oh, you know, awesome. Well, you know what? Um, let me ask you something. Uh, have you already scoped out budget for this? You're like, what? Sure. I haven't even t- like finished telling you my problem. You already have, how much budget do you have? Oh, okay. You know, what's your timeline? Like if someone is asking me those questions, I'm automatically turned off. I'm like, oh God, like, okay, great. Yeah. They, they're putting me through their band process to see if I'm worth speaking to or not, right? Um, it's just not the way I think to, to interact with what, what your job as a salesperson should be is to create the demand and create the compelling event. It's, it's not to be like, oh yeah, I'm just talking to a time waster. I'm just going to go ahead and get them off the phone or or better yet, we throw SDRs, right, which are the least experienced people in the organization, and we stick them on the front lines. They have to have the very, very first conversation. And I, like, how many leads do we potentially lose by having the least experienced person in the company that knows the least about our product be the first line of defense? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, like, I, I always wondered. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. I so many organizations where that's the case. And I think the buyers, you know, on the buy side, it, you eventually just get used to going through and, uh, you know, qualifying yourself via an SDR. It's almost, uh, it's kind of a ridiculous process now that you put it that way. I mean, it really is. Totally. Interesting. I love it. Well, uh, I know we're, we're coming up on time here. This has been an awesome conversation. I want to end with two quick things. We, we like to ask, uh, you to give a shout out to some folks. Is there anyone that you would recommend bring on the show? Uh, yes. I think a lot of the principles I actually mentioned, um, you know, I've always thought about them, but it wasn't until I met Jocko uh, that I really felt like I gained the uh, vocabulary to intelligently start to put some, you know, real uh, words behind. So Jocko is the founder of Winning by Design. He's really pioneered this whole 
world of, you know, sales as a science. Um, and so de- definitely someone who's worth, you know, checking out, you know, or just go to winningbydesign.com. A, a lot of their stuff is actually speaking of open source, you know, they provide a lot of their content free of charge on uh, YouTube as well as on their website. So lots and lots of great things. And, and they've, Jocko's written many books um, that, that I think are just must reads if you are in, you know, tech sales. Um, and then the other, you know, there's a lot of people. I'm, I'm going to give the second one to um, Stephanie Schatz, who, you know, I had the good fortune of uh, helping and uh, working alongside with Xamarin. Uh, she was our head of sales there. Um, and again, we worked very, very closely together to take Xamarin, you know, from this teeny tiny unknown company, right, to, you know, it was, we went from like zero to almost about a million developers that were leveraging Xamarin by the time we uh, sold the company to Microsoft. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of like really, it, she, she was so obsessed with like customers having a great experience and that every interaction that salespeople had with the customer always added value. Like you never waste a customer's time, right? And, and just that whole concept of an SDR, not like don't ask stupid questions, right? Like try to find out what are they, what help do they need? And then like give them that help, right? And always just shortcut um, overhead, like just, um, and, and she was also big on the, like the the whole teach don't sell. Um, so yeah, Stephanie Schatz, um, who's who does also a lot of great advising in Silicon Valley um, today. Um, yeah, those I those are the it. two. No, that's perfect. Jocko and Stephanie getting the shout outs. There All you right. go. You got to get them on next. Great. I'm gonna have to give them yeah. a heads up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. And uh, and everyone can uh, get in contact with you, Arwaf, after the podcast via what? Twitter, LinkedIn? Is that yeah, right? I'm yeah, definitely accessible on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, it's Arwa Kadura. So just my first and last name, and uh, you know, go by the same on LinkedIn, Arwa Kadura. And uh, it was really, really fun talking to you. And uh, yeah, this is this is an important topic. I, I think we're we're definitely not done. It's going to be interesting to see the evolution over the next two to three years. I, I think there's going to. I'm sure I'll be you know I'll be surprised by some of the disruptions. And and I think a lot of the things that we talked about will we'll continue to see um, unfold. Um, but it's it's an exciting time I think to be in technology sales. Absolutely, you made some bold predictions and obviously looked at some real. Uh, big trends that have been happening. Um, it, it's exciting. I agree with you. I love the evolution of the salesperson and the sales process. Um, can't thank you enough, Harwa, for coming on and talking to us. Loved it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers. 